Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Creedal Catholic is a Catholic theology and apologetics podcast that is faithful to the magisterium and dedicated to the mission of the new evangelization. We're a part of the Vernacular Podcast Network, and if you'd like to support us or find out more about the other shows on our network, head to patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Enjoy the show. I'm very excited to bring you today's episode, which is an interview with Paul McCusker. And if that name sounds vaguely familiar to you, it may be because you, like myself, grew up as a child listening to Adventures in Odyssey, which is a kid's radio drama that uses story to teach kids truths about the Bible and theology and life. So if you've listened to that before, you'll probably be familiar with this music. I was just working on one of my inventions here. I'm John Avery Whitaker, but you can call me Whit. And Paul McCusker was on the early production team and wrote, I think at this point, over 300 of these episodes. So he was a formative part of my childhood even long before I met him. Adventures in Odyssey is a production of Focus on the Family. Today's episode was written and directed by Paul McCusker. But he eventually became Catholic. And in this conversation... Uh, in this episode, part one, we talk all about the reasons why he became Catholic and his journey up to that point from growing up Baptist to eventually uh, being received into the church in 2007. And it's a really good conversation. We talk all about authority. We talk about various reasons for conversion. We talk about misconceptions of reasons for conversion. And uh, I really enjoyed sitting down with Paul and talking to him all about all of that. And then in part two, which I'm going to release in a, in a couple days, we talk about catechesis in the church and how the church often does it poorly. We talk about telling stories in the church. We talk about various models of approaching theology between the average Catholic and average Protestant. We talk about uh, the development of language in England and how that was different from the communication of theology through art and uh, literature in continental Europe. So it's, it's a really interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Most importantly, perhaps, we talk about Paul's recent work with the Augustine Institute. If you're not familiar with the Augustine Institute Radio Theater, I highly encourage you to go check that out, augustineinstitute.org. They are making these fantastic radio dramas that are you know, six hours long or so and telling the stories of saints like St. Francis and St. Patrick, St. Cecilia. There's also one about Robin Hood, who's not a saint, but uh, an, an interesting radio drama nonetheless. So I definitely encourage you to check those out. You can also access them through formed.org because the Augustine Institute runs formed.org. So uh, your parish probably has a membership to form.org. You can, you can ask your parish about that or probably look in your bulletin. I bet the code's there. Um, but that's a great resource for you and your family to learn more about these things. And they're very high-quality radio dramas. The St. Francis one even won a, a, an Audi Web Award, which is a, a secular award, and they thought the St. Francis drama was good enough to deserve that. So go check out the Augustine Institute Radio Theater and enjoy this conversation with Paul McCusker. So welcome I'd like to talk to you first about your upbringing. Were you raised in a Christian home? Yeah, actually, um, I, I would say my formative years were uh, Baptist. Okay. At, at a Baptist church in Bowie, Maryland, where I grew up. But I was actually um, christened in a Presbyterian church okay. in Silver Spring. But at other times, I know that we went to other types of churches. Uh, I have often joked that, especially once we settled in at Grace Baptist, 
we actually bounced between Grace Baptist Church and Crest Hill Baptist Church, depending on how annoyed my mom got with the length <laughs> of the sermons. Yeah, yeah. There would be points where she's go, okay, I'm tired. He's I can't just, sit for a 60-minute sermon. He's been talking sermon. for another 40 minutes, and I'm, yeah. that's it. You know, the, the Sunday roast is burning. Right. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I'm a bit of a mutt in terms of, of my Protestant life, but really the formative years, I'd say, were in the Baptist Church. Okay. And so you were, but you were not Baptist when we first met, when we first met in 2006, I think. At that time, you were attending an Episcopal church, right? Yeah. So, and and that journey, and it's kind of weird, you know, uh, trying to figure out how to do the elevator speech on this. And that is... Um, uh, formative years as a Baptist, but um, I moved from Maryland to California to work with a ministry there. Circumstances had dramatically changed my life in Bowie, and I actually considered the inconceivable, which was to move to California, right, Southern yeah. California, oh, which I, I just honestly had no desire to do. But um, the way things played out in 1985, I moved to Southern California, and then there was a church in Thousand Oaks that I had actually done some freelance writing for. I'd written Christmas programs for them. So everybody at the office where I worked, this ministry called Continental Ministries, and they okay. had a touring group called Jeremiah People, and I wrote for them. Um, everybody was going to this one church, so I went to that. It was a non-denominational church. And I was there for a couple of years and then got married. And my wife, Elizabeth, she's English, but she was in Southern California. Oh, I didn't realize that you met in. The we United met in States. Southern California, okay, wow. and then got married in England, and then yeah. she she came. Well, back. I know you spent some time in England, so I guess I just assumed that you had met her while yeah. you were in England. No, she was a, a nanny. Okay, uh, in Thousand Oaks, and I met her through the church that we were attending. Well, after we got married in '88, we moved from Thousand Oaks down to Mission Viejo, mm -hmm. and that's where we went into this sort of wilderness. Um, we just could not find for all of the churches you have out there to choose from even you know saddleback and these right right amazing churches we we it's like we tried them all and i actually found it easier to you know go to coco's for breakfast and read the sunday los, los angeles times right, rather right. than go to church because uh, we kept trying them and i don't know if i was trying to replicate my grace baptist experience mm -hmm. which was we, it was such a unique church it couldn't be replicated i, I don't know and then Concurrent with that was the whole Willow Creek thing. Yeah. So the seeker-sensitive model for churches also hit. And we would go, and I kept thinking, I think church is, is supposed to be more transcendent than this. I didn't even use the word transcendent. I just kept thinking, it's been around for 2,000 years, and we're using all the same marketing gimmicks as secular organizations try to get people to come in and buy our product. Right. It's like a spiritual 7-Eleven. And um, I, I struggled with it and, and just kept thinking, ah, this isn't, I don't think this is what it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And then I remember, actually, it's a funny thing. I remember driving uh, down a main road with my wife and there in Mission Viejo. And there was a Catholic church that we had gone past multiple times. And I went, okay, something's going on there. And it was like an evening I'm assuming it was a Sunday and it might have been an evening mass, okay. late Sunday mass. And we went in and the unfamiliarity of everything yeah, sure. we saw. And there were people doing the guitars yep. and Godspell wannabe songs and things like that. And we turned around and walked back out again. Yeah. That was my brush. Uh, but yeah, I've heard those referred to as the, the Mariah Carey mass. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's even later than I'm thinking. I, I reference Godspell. It all yeah. sounds like <laughs> 1970s, you know, mediocre music at right. best. So... 
we moved to England in 1991. Okay. Um, it was my insistence. It's funny. My wife loves America. I mean, she's, she, she had never, uh, every time we've gone back to England, it was my insistence that we live there. And every time you come back to the U S it's hers. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, she's, if only because the appliances are bigger, but, um, they are, they are significantly bigger. That's yeah. True. Huge. You've got, you know, little things about the size, yeah. you know, your washer how, and dryer is the exactly. size of a 19 inch television. I don't you know, know, it's I don't know how you, t- you do dishes or laundry for a large family. Yeah. In oh, England. Yeah. It's crazy. That's why they tend not to have large right. families. Yeah, I good think point. they just don't know how to do the laundry. <laughs> That's the um, limiting factor. <laughs> so, the size of the washer. Yeah, it has nothing to do with anything else. <laughs> so uh, in 91, it's funny, Focus on the Family. I had started working for Focus right. at the same time that I got married and was working on Odyssey. And Focus on the Family decided to move to Colorado Springs. Mm. But I'd already made the decision, let's move to England. I can freelance from there. I'll continue to write for Odyssey. I'll do all this. And, um, and I love England. I mean, First I woman, I set it's, it's wonderful. foot yeah. on the ground there. I felt like I had come home. Well, we were looking for a church. And it's fascinating what people think when they said, oh, you ought to try this church. Mm-hmm. And we tried them and you go, what, are the, what does her family think about us that they told us that we should go to this church? What signal did I give? Oh, one is, you know, one, we went to one service that was in this, um, well, I think an elementary school okay. or something like that. And, and they were doing, it ended with this sort of, rallying cheers for Jesus. Give oh, no. me a J. Give oh, me no. a D. The kind oh, of thing no. you did in youth camp, but <laughs> yeah. you didn't expect to do in what was supposed On to be Sunday worship. Mornings, yeah. And I kept thinking, okay, we got to find a way to sneak out of here because they're going to... It's a problem. Yeah. So we kept looking and finally near where we were living, there was an Anglican church. Okay. It was big and it seemed to be thriving. We always saw cars in mm-hmm. the parking lot and we said, let's go look. So we went in and it was High Church Anglican very liturgical. And I sat down and thought, oh, this is what I've been looking for. And I never would have guessed it. I mean, ever. Yeah. Wow. In my wildest dream, something that liturgical was, it was not on the radar. Yeah. And I went, okay, I don't know what this is, but we got to find out more about it. So that's where we attended while we lived in England. And ostensibly I became Anglican then. Right. Just by virtue um, of going to an yeah, Anglican church every but Sunday. But we then yeah. moved back to Colorado. Well, moved not back to Col- to Colorado right. Springs for the first time. And again, we went through the church hunting. I thought, I don't want to go to an, an Episcopal church. They're notoriously liberal. So what are we going to do? And we searched and searched. And finally, it was actually a gentleman at Focus on the Family who said, I think I know what you're looking for. And he actually admitted he'd go there if his wife <laughs> yeah. wouldn't leave him if he did. Oh, no, he said, man. But he serious. said, you ought to check out Grace Church. Mm-hmm. Um, Don Armstrong was the, the rector there. High church, solid Anglican, not Episcopalian, Anglican. Right. He said, you should try that. And so uh, Elizabeth and I went and it was kind of a done deal. Love and so at first sight, I was, huh? Yeah. So I was received into, I guess that's not the way I became a member. Sure. Um, uh, went through whatever their catechesis was and then became Episcopalian. And their catechesis was basically a membership class, right? Because you... Yeah, I kind of went yeah. over things and that was it. And I had the so, prayer book. So this was the mid-90s then at this point? This would have been about 92, okay. 93. Early 90s. Thereabouts, yeah. So early 90s. And so I was... I, I don't think there's any other way to say it. I was Anglican mm-hmm. um, then for the next in 12 to 15 years. Yeah. Um, cause we moved back to England in 97 right. and then I continued to go to Anglican churches there, uh, or my wife as well. So we went there. So really from about 92 until, 
well, 2007, right. uh, I was lock, stock, and barrel. I was, I was considered myself Anglican, and I expected to stay Anglican. Even with all the changes that were going on, I, I was sort of diehard. I was going to stay in, no matter, come what may, you know. Yeah, so just for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with all of the turmoil in the Episcopal Church, so you, you became Anglican at a pretty significant time because maybe maybe the 90s were relatively peaceful there was some craziness i think going going on in the uh in the episcopal offices of the episcopal church where you know and i think the biggest deal might have been what was it 9091 that they accepted the ordination of women right right that and, was probably the biggest thing at the time right at the time and there were some crazy crazy uh, bishops out there i think uh what was his name? John Shelby Spong or something. You well, know. yeah, Bishop Spong would bring out a new book like every major holiday to debunk. Right. And and then you'd get and, to and the book would wondering be, why this man was still Episcopalian. And a bishop. I mean, and the, yeah. the book will be something like, you know, why the resurrection of Jesus didn't really happen. It yeah, wasn't it was a physical. Re- yeah, figurative or, resurrection. Yeah. I mean, just kind of crazy stuff. So there were those fringe figures in the Episcopal Church, but it wasn't uh, a mainstream movement, I don't think. And then the, uh, the crisis sort of, came to a head, I think, in 2006, when Bishop Gene Robinson was consecrated Bishop of New, of New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. I'm not even sure if it was all of New Hampshire or just a, a part of New Hampshire, whatever his diocesan reach was, but he was consecrated bishop there. And the problem was that he was uh, a, a man who was living with a in, a, in a sexual relationship with another man, living together right. in a in a union. I don't, I don't even well, know. And, and it wasn't just a matter of him being a bishop. The Episcopal Church had allowed him to stay as a priest. Right. So he had left, he had betrayed his vows to his wife and his children. Right. He was celebrated as sort of a hero for coming out and acknowledging what he was. And uh, and then they made him a bishop. I forgot that he loved his wife and children. That was a... Yeah, a, I mean, and it was... And and to, to put it in, in its context, as this whole thing was coming up, this question of, of homosexuality in the church, ordination, all of these things, I remember watching a... It was an interview with a woman bishop in Southern California. Okay, I think it was on ABC, and they had asked her the question, "Well, uh, what's the deal with this? And mm-hmm. and how, how would you argue against the traditional people who say that this is all wrong, uh, or, ordaining him?" And um, and she had said, "Well, we know so much more about sexuality than they did in the first century." <laughs> And I, I was classic. Line. I was dumbfounded by classic that. Line. I just kept thinking. So we know more than Jesus. We know more now than the Apostle Paul, who was dealing with every form of sexual depravity right. and everything. But we understand so much more now. And that put me, not singularly, but around that time, I thought, yeah, but if they're bishops, it's a done deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're bishops, and if the continuity of apostolic succession, I at least had an understanding of that yep. enough to, to say, okay, uh, I'll buy into that. Um, I had to raise the question, if they're wrong, then who does have the authority to interpret scripture and establish doctrine? Cause the issue isn't the authority of scripture. It is the interpretation of it. And then from that interpretation, you establish doctrine. So around the time, a couple of years before 2006 and that ordination, um, if that's the right phrase for him, Con- consecration, a consecration for a bishop, yeah. for, of a bishop. Um, I was already asking those questions, and which then took me backwards to mm-hmm. uh, well, the ancient church. Right. So let's take that apart a little bit. I think authority is a pretty common 
reason to become Catholic because people grow up in Protestant circles and, and there are varying levels of, of epistemological authority in different Protestant communities. So uh, in a non-denominational church, you might just make every man your own Pope and you trust the Holy Spirit to guide individual interpretation. And you go to the church uh, that has the most people with whom you most agree yeah. Uh, in other churches, you may leave the question of authority interpretation up to a sort of local council of elders mm-hmm. in in conjunction with your teaching pastor or your executive pastor. And then there are other communities that are more Episcopal, and I mean that in a small E sense, that they mm-hmm. have bishops. And so they have some understanding, um, some claim that they make, even if it's not valid, but some claim that they make to having apostolic succession and continuing the ministry of the apostles and um, carrying on the ministry of the apostles through the laying on of hands. And if you're in those communities, then the idea is that the bishops in those communities have the authority to to make doctrine, right? Or to right. to define and to hold doctrine, right? But let's let's go to the other extreme, which is the individual, singularly. Right. Me. I have the authority mm-hmm. that somehow the Holy Spirit has endowed me with some understanding where I can then interpret and make doctrine for myself or for my family. And who can tell me I'm wrong? Who has the authority to correct me? Right apart from some sort of argument, but then when you get into the text or you get into that, uh, as is cynically said, you can almost make the Bible say anything, mm-hmm. and and people do. So for me, I, I realized the end result was every, every individual is his own pope. Well, how does the Holy Spirit guide you and guide me coming to completely separate conclusions right. about our interpretation? I mean, completely. And I kept thinking that it's not when Jesus intended. I couldn't fathom that Jesus as God incarnate was only exhibiting some form of wishful thinking mm-hmm. when he prayed that we would be one as he and the father were one. So that part of it kept nagging at me. And I'll admit, I think it was Richard Foster. You know, sort of, he's sort of a Protestant mystic in a way. Yeah. But I, he, I'll miss, I'll misquote him. He said, most Protestants, and he may have even said Christians, which would be accurate, don't know church history. They don't know history at Absolutely, all. Absolutely, yeah. There was this thing called the first century, this blip called the Reformation, and then Billy Graham. Mm-hmm. That's all anybody needs to know. And of course, as we know, as Protestants, that's all you do need to know. You only need to know your Bible. Everything between me and the first century is pretty much irrelevant. Right. Well, as an Anglican, especially in a more orthodox Anglican sense, I at least got enough. I went back 500 years to at least understand where the Church of England came from, Hooker's theology, all the things that they constructed around Henry VIII's break. Right. Um, It reminded me of a corporation. It was one of those, your entrepreneurial director made a decision. Now everyone has to scramble and figure out how to justify it theologically. And so... I kept trying to work through, all right, that much. But then I realized I, I couldn't stop mm-hmm. there. I had to go back, and I had to go back all the way. Um, so I went back to the New Testament, because it's what I know, read the book of Acts. Yeah. The book of Acts was the church in action, as J.B. Phillips would put it. Yep. And I began to read, okay, how did they make their decisions? By what authority did they make their decisions? When they replaced Judas— I don't, can't find the verse in the Gospels where Jesus said, by the way, you'll be down one, you need to replace him. Right. They made the authority to do that. The, the, the Hellenist Jews, the waiting on tables, 
those things. Yep. Even Peter receiving a vision and then saying, we've got to rethink the yep. Gentile thing. Yeah. Because people Acts, forget he did it before right. Paul. Yeah. So he made that decision. Acts chapter 15, the based, Jerusalem Council. Based on some semblance of authority. Right. Well, then I was reading that he would walk down the streets of Jerusalem and people would try to position themselves so his shadow would mm-hmm. fall on them. Or so touch his garment, right? Exactly. In fact, a Protestant friend of mine said, hey, wait a minute, that sounds an awful lot like Jesus. And I said, well, I think that's the point. I, <laughs> sounds kind of like relics too. I think when what? he gave them authority, yeah. he really gave them authority. Right. And that that meant come what may to a great degree. Mm-hmm. And so the more I researched, the more I looked at what the early church believed and why it believed it, uh, the more it was becoming undeniable uh, in, in terms of where I needed to land. The answer to the question was apostolic authority. Yeah. And not as I understood it as an Anglican, but as as I understood it through the early church. Because I wanted to get rid of the arrogance of 20 centuries later, we have a better idea than they did. So I allowed for the apostolic authority in the more Catholic sense, mm-hmm. which once I answered that question, it was compelling to me Then I had to do something. Right. And it was either going to be Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. Yeah, I think the authority point's a really important one. And, and like I said, lots of people become Catholic because of this question of authority. But I also think that we need to be careful in communicating to people what we mean by authority. Mm-hmm. Because like you said, you know, Anglicans have their own understanding of authority. And there's a kernel of truth in that understanding and that Anglicans at least recognize the importance of the Episcopal office, even if they don't recognize all of it. Mm-hmm. And even if they don't have uh, valid apostolic succession, right? right. Um, as we know from Leo the Thirteenth, But they do have this, they do have some sort of seminal understanding at least of authority. Mm-hmm. But I think the problem for me at least is is in the sort of uh, what we call in, in the Catholic world, the hermeneutic of continuity, right? Mm-hmm. It's not that we simply say, the bishops are always right. Because if we said that, then the first the first Catholic bishop that did something bad, and there have been a lot of them, yeah. uh, that would disprove our entire hermeneutic of authority, right? Mm-hmm. But rather we have a hermeneutic of continuity that basically says the church has already authoritatively spoken on these things. And we can point to these discrete moments in history when the church or the pope as the vicar of Christ uh, representing the magisterium has spoken definitively on a certain topic. So we can point to those things and say the, that sets the bounds, right? We have scripture obviously setting the bounds at the beginning, but we have these other issues that come up. And because we're, we, we are dealing with, uh, with ideas like we now have a more developed understanding of sexuality, et cetera, because we have those types of arguments, we need to have a living voice of authority mm-hmm. that will act within the hermeneutic of continuity to define what the church teaches. Right. And the Catholic church has that in a way that no one else does. And so I think that, you know, when I tell people that I became Catholic in part because of this authority issue, I think sometimes they think, oh, that's that's great. You just think that it's all so easy when you become Catholic. But then I look, you know, as a Protestant, I look at, at the Catholic church and I see bishops disagreeing on these matters. And I see some right. cardinals who say we should allow for communion for the remarried. And I see some who are saying that we should allow for married priests in the Amazon. And I see some that are saying that we should, you know, now bless same-sex relationships. So don't tell me that there's there's authority there. Right. But that, that misses the point because the claim has never been that the church is uniform across all of its members and all of its clergy. Rather, the claim has been that the church has the authority to speak with a living voice on matters of faith and morals, and that when she does so, she's right, and she will not err. 
that right. and that's that's what we mean by well and, and we use the example of peter that in in one breath peter will proclaim that jesus is the son of the living god right when he said who do you say that i am uh and then a few verses later we don't know the timing but uh, then he's saying no we're not going to let you be crucified we're not going to let you die and then uh, jesus says in one hand you you have said that through the spirit is speaking through you and in the other hand get thee behind me satan right and so in the same person and that same person went on to deny him three times later so the reality of of the position jesus doesn't show he never comes off as an idealist at every point he knew he chose these disciples right yeah it's not even like you know they just showed up and he begrudgingly took them he chose them so he knew what he was getting into. And when he gives them the keys, when he makes them essentially the steward, makes Peter the steward yep. and all of them positionally stewards of this church, um, he did it not naively or idealistically. He did it fully knowing uh, uh, their humanity. So the differentiates, this, this is why as a Protestant, it was very easy to do the, yeah, well, you know, look, look how they live, look what they say, look right. what they do, without understanding uh, the greater depth behind that speaking. I mean, the difference is Protestants just think they do it individually. Right. Or they're doing it through the different forms of authority that you described earlier. Right, right. And that's it. And it's also a misunderstanding of what we mean by authority. Right. And that's why I qualify. It's not just authority. Mm -hmm. It's the authority to do two things, interpret scripture, and we would expand that to interpret history, interpret right. tradition, and establish doctrine. So for me, that's what became important was what, what authority means, what it does in the context of fallen humanity from Adam all the way to, through to the present. Yeah. So the continuity is critical in, in terms of that. And the Bishop of Rome, as we would call him, being first among equals, as we saw that mm -hmm. Peter was. I mean, there's a lot of biblical precedent for all of it. And that was the thing that wowed me because I'm reading the book of Acts. Yeah. And then I go back and I'm reading the Gospels. And I realized that so many of the things in the Gospels that Jesus says that were hard sayings, you know, people wrote books, Protestant books about the hard sayings right, of Jesus. Right. And I suddenly realized the only reason they were hard was because they were Catholic. Mm -hmm. That like it John didn't six, line so. up. Yeah, it didn't line up at all with, with Luther or any of uh, the reformers thinking. So they had to figure out how to do the gymnastics around them to dispense with them, get rid of them or neutralize them so they didn't have the potency that they clearly had. Yeah. I mean, all of the references to where Jesus gives his authority to the disciples in particular, the way he speaks to them, then he speaks to the three, Mount of Transfiguration. Yep. Everything is there, and yet as a Protestant, especially, let's say, as a Baptist, it was easy for me to think, oh, somebody else has figured this out. Mm -hmm. You know, you kind of come in with a certain premise, you know, uh, someone else's assumptions and foundation and you just take that as truth, and then you build on it. But suddenly, when you go back, as I had to, and say, "Well, no, wait a minute. What if that was that's wrong? Mm -hmm. And what if that doesn't even line up with fifteen hundred years? Because that was my other problem. Was how was it that God, Jesus, left His church in error for fifteen hundred years? Then, right. or even if you say twelve hundred or whatever. I mean, for a thousand years, we had something resembling a unified. Yeah, church. absolutely. Before and the then schism, 1054, certainly. we have yeah. the split. And then 500 years later, uh, I'm just trying to figure out how that works, that 
that God would leave his church in error um, for all those years. It didn't make yeah. sense to me. I think in a best case scenario, if you are holding to a reformed Protestant tradition, you sit, you know, in a, your best case scenario is that basically between the great schism and the Protestant reformation, the church is in darkness and is effectively non-existent. And you have, you have a few voices crying out in the wilderness in the interim, but the church as a, as a, uh, as a visible body, Mm-hmm. that is carrying on the ministry of the church is effectively not there. Yeah. Uh, in a worst case scenario, you can basically say that, you know, from the death of the last apostle, there's no real church until Luther comes along and points out that, you know, there are a few voices crying out in the wilderness and he reinterprets some of Augustine and says, this is, this is how we're actually saved. And mm-hmm. now, now we've got it figured out and now we've got our marching orders. Well, and, and, and by what authority did Luther do right, or exactly. say anything that he said? Yeah, and I mean, it cracked me up because then when you read Luther and one of the things of course is about a degree of self-determination about scripture. Right. But he was furious, absolutely furious with his own disciples mm-hmm. who interpreted scripture differently than he did. Yeah. He was angry. It ticked him off because they actually did what he said they were allowed to do and they came to different conclusions than he did. Right. And he also then took upon himself the authority to say that anybody who who acknowledges the pope as head of the church should be burned should be beheaded, killed, whatever. So it's pretty hardcore stuff. It, well, it's very hardcore and and I'm and I get in the tug of war between sure. Catholic and Protestant at the time and how incredibly incendiary that was. So I'm not trying to side in, in terms of behavior, but in in terms of Luther coming along 1500 years and saying, "Ah, I got it." Yep. Well, I'm still back to the same question. Well, who gave him that authority? Yep. By what authority does he do that? And and we know historically that a lot of the authority was given to him by civic, the civic powers who actually just wanted to get the Catholic Church out of their fiefdoms or whatever it might have been. Right. So the dynamic of that I hold no illusions about. I hold no illusions. What I love about uh, the Catholics that I've met and the ones that influenced me in my journey was they were unflinching about mm-hmm. the flaws in the church. They didn't pretend like they didn't exist. Right. In fact, as I've been doing these dramas for the Augustine Institute about yeah, we Saint haven't. Francis, I want to talk about those. We well, about as I yet. study the saints, it's like at every stage of history, beginning with the book of Acts, you have a struggle for reform. I mean, over on my bookshelf there is the Sigurd Unset bi- biography of Catherine of Siena. If mm-hmm. you haven't read it, highly recommend it. Yeah. But talk about an incredible saint and mm-hmm. reformer. Yeah. who was literally pounding on the Pope's door telling him to return from Avignon and come back to Rome because your church needs you and you're not leading the flock mm-hmm. adequately and the church is in rebellion and you have bishops and cardinals who are going behind your back and forming military alliances against you. I mean, that the, the problems then make our current ones pale in comparison. Right. And, and, and if you go back even a few years, I mean, during the time of St. Patrick, uh, St. Francis, even if you went Back further, once the church was no longer under persecution, you know, uh, once we had Constantine and a lot of things changed, um, you had ongoing reform to some degree. I mean, the church is dynamic. That's the other thing. It's a participatory dynamic between God and the Holy Spirit and right. those that he's He's made stewards of, of his church. And in that whole situation... You've got a timeless church having to make very timely decisions, mm-hmm. and you were talking about that earlier. Every generation has its own problems. Every generation has to figure out its its situation and what is the proper response to this. 
But when it comes to faith and morals, when it comes to the key things that Jesus gave for them to do and the continuity of yeah. every bishop since then, then we tr- basically, we as Catholics are trusting the Catholic Church leadership is doing what individual Protestants believe the Holy Spirit is doing individually with them right. and their Bibles. Yeah, I want to be careful in how I, how I say what I'm about to say because I don't want to come across as criticizing criticizing Protestant individuals for this. But one thing I've realized since becoming Catholic is there's a, there's a, in approaching this question of authority, mm-hmm. there's a difference in the humility of the individual believer. Because as a Protestant, you have to rely on your own reason and mm-hmm. ability to, to determine doctrine for yourself and, right. and discern everything against your own understanding of scripture and revelation but as a Catholic, although you're certainly required to use your reason, and the church has been very clear that our God-given reason is something that is good and helps us access the mm-hmm. truth, and we should use our reason for sure, there are also times where we are just simply out of our depth, right? And I think on this point of uh, something like contraception, mm-hmm. this was not an issue for anybody prior to the 19th century, mm-hmm. really really even 20th century. 20th right? century. I think, the, I think the Episcopal Church was the first to accept it in the 19th 30s. The, the, as late as that. Lambeth Conference, I think, right? I think it might have been. Yeah, and so, you know, this is not something that you can go to your Bible on and think, oh, let's see, does God approve of using contraception, right? Yeah. Rather, we have to be humble and submit to authority and acknowledge, okay, this is not readily discernible for me. Church, what is, what's the position on here? How does a, how does a Christian live his or her life? Right. I hate to sound lazy, but the amount of pressure on any individual to interpret scripture for themselves to know language, to know the depth of that we have in 2,000 years of, of Catholic teaching. Right. Um, I'm not lazy, but that's a lot of pressure. Yeah, sure. That I have to become an expert in things that I'm not an expert in by way of language and proper interpretation and digging down into context, historical context, the context of Scripture itself. What did Jesus mean when he said that? And the amount of pressure to say, to look for something that isn't necessarily there. Because the Bible does not address every situation every generation is going to come up with, like right. contraception being one, um, and the dynamic, whether it's sexuality and transgenderism yep. or all the things that are going on now. Um, and that's where the authority has to be in place. Otherwise, it's every man and woman for him or herself. Right, exactly. So I think that's really important to think about. You know, I've, I've had conversations with Protestants who say, I'm never going to not be Protestant. And then I say, well, I'm never going to not be Catholic. And those attitudes might sound equivalent on their face, but I think they're not exactly equivalent because the Catholic is saying, I'm not going to cease to be Catholic because I have the humility to trust that the church knows what she's talking about. Mm -hmm. The Protestant says, I will never cease to be Protestant because I will not cease trusting that I know what I'm talking about. Right. If that makes sense. Well, and and it does everything in the full spectrum of, uh, very learned Protestants who know history, who know uh, lots more than I know, and yeah, come and to and different conclusions. And then the 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 one that I was talking to, who who uh, guy I worked with uh, several years ago, who said, you know, I'm just not, I'm just not into all of this theology. Mm. You know, I just want to love Jesus and serve Him. At which point I said. What do you mean love? And what do you mean Jesus? Right. Are you talking about Jesus? And what do you mean serve? <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I said. So what do you mean by love? Yeah. And how do you love Jesus? And do you mean Jesus is a good teacher? Do you, what, what Jesus are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And, and then serve. And, 
And he started looking like, oh, you're just being difficult. And I said, no, as soon as you no, define, these are real questions. as soon as you define those things, you are in theology, right. which means you have to define them. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, what are you doing? And for me, when I became Catholic, when I was received in, the only way I could think to put it was that I would, I wasn't going to be a cafeteria Catholic. Mm-hmm. I had no interest. Uh, the stakes were too high. Absolutely. For me to do it and then pick and choose what I liked and didn't like about what they believed. I yielded to the authority of the church. And I, the phrase I used was, I will accept, I will embrace all I can and accept what I struggle to embrace. Yes. You know, so because there, there are some things that I'm not comfortable with, but I yield to the authority and how they were made and, and that they made them. And it's not for me to say I'm better than any of the apostles. Right. I think we could say there are some things that are hard sayings. Yeah. Just like there were for the apostles who were sure. listening to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's, that's a part of faith as well. You know, I was talking to my spiritual director the other day and he was saying every, we can't do anything about doubts that overtake us mm. or confront us, but we can, uh, we, uh, and w- when he said, we can't do anything about them, what he actually said, we can't make them go away. We can't make these doubts just disappear. Right. Mm-hmm. But the doubts present us with an opportunity for growing in our faith. And the church is also very clear on this, that the, the, the believing Catholic is not to simply blindly obey everything that the church teaches. Now, the Catholic is supposed to obey everything the church teaches, but the Catholic is supposed to use his or her reason to mm-hmm. work through what the church teaches. Well, and, and, that's, and that's the difference, I think. I, I, I went to a C.S. Lewis conference before I was Catholic, and I met Peter Kraft. Mm-hmm. Um, and at a break, we were talking and found out that he had become Catholic when right. he was at Calvin College. Yeah, exactly. And I came away, and I realized there's a degree of bigotry that I could have applied. One is, well how could he possibly have accepted the Catholic teachings on anything? How can this smart man be so stupid? Right. I actually went the other direction and said, what did he see that I'm not seeing? Because there must be something. I'm not that clever. So what is it that he has seen that all these years, he's still Catholic. It's not right. like he became Catholic and then left it. Right. He has been a staunch apologist for the Catholic mm-hmm. church all these years. I've got a, his, um, apologetics for yeah. Christians on my shelf over there. Oh, he's, he's brilliant. And I realize everybody makes a choice in that direction. Mm-hmm. It's like when a Protestant goes into a Catholic church, I equate that with when we as Americans go to a foreign country. Yeah, We can go to a foreign country and go look around as a friend of mine did when we went to England once. And he looked around and he went, well, that's stupid. Why do they do that? <laughs> and I, I was aghast. I just couldn't believe that he, he said it. But then I realized that's the way it goes, that some people could look, or you might say, well, I may not ultimately agree with driving on the other side of the road from how we drive, but I'd be interested in finding out why they decided to do that. Um, That's the difference. We can, a Protestant go into Catholic church and go, well, that's stupid. Why do they do that? Or maybe go in and say, okay, why do they do that? Not pronounce it as stupid, but just say, I wonder why they do that. And then follow through to find out. Even if you ultimately come to a conclusion that I still don't agree with it, sure. at least you're disagreeing with the reality as opposed to the experience I've had with Protestants who think they know what they're talking about when they talk about like I did. Mm-hmm. I would have readily talked about Catholicism completely out of ignorance. Yeah, I often say that there's, you know, there's nothing more dangerous than 
a lapsed Catholic who went to Catholic school. Yes. Because they think they know everything. Oh, I always brace myself. Yeah. I brace myself for that. And a, a good friend of mine who speaks in a lot of context to Protestants and Catholics said, um, sadly, some of the most vitriolic comments he gets are from former Catholics. Yeah. And as soon as I hear from somebody that they've been to a Catholic school, I brace myself Absolutely. for the possibility that they're no longer of the Catholic faith. Right. And, and that's been part of my passion after I came into the Catholic church. Um, I realized very quickly that catechetical teaching was I, I not totally what it agree. ought to be. Yeah, totally agree. And even the parish experience was not necessarily going to be what I would hope that it was. Well, let's let's pivot a little bit and talk about that. So okay. 2007 is when you became Catholic. Mm-hmm. Just maybe a, maybe a way to sort of get into what you've been doing since then and what you've thought about the church since then and how your understanding has grown. Any regrets about becoming Catholic since 2007? Not becoming Catholic. Um no, not at all. Um, I mean, there are things that I regret in terms of uh, stuff that we may talk about in terms of uh, poor catechism sure. and and things like that, or or dubious parish experiences, um, parishes that are Protestant wannabes. You know, they're trying to do the praise band yep, thing, or yep. they're trying to do things and not doing it very well. Right, exactly. Um, and you try I, to do everything, you're going to do nothing well. So. Right, and yeah. so I. Uh, but as a no, I have no regrets about becoming Catholic and being Catholic. Uh, I may grieve over certain things, the state sure. of certain things within the Catholic Church, but in terms of it being the truth, because that's what I responded to. Yep. Once I asked the question and followed it through, I felt duty bound to to see it to its conclusion, and there was no point in me going through all that and going, "Oh yes, it's apostolic succession." And where does that now reside? Is right. that in the Roman Catholic or the Eastern Orthodox? And where is it? And then I make that decision. And then what? Just go home and pretend like I never explored it? Or just right. go, sorry, I just can't do that. That's a bridge too far. I'm not going to go. Yeah, I totally agree. I couldn't do it. I had to follow through. I keep using the phrase, come what may, but that was my sensibility. I knew it was going to alienate key family members, people who were going to be hurt, people who were going to f- feel betrayed that I would jumped to the other team. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working at Focus on the Family, and I wasn't sure what that was going to happen there. Yeah. Uh, the good news is Focus was actually fine. Um, they, I, I didn't get much. I, I think they knew that I know our audience. You know, sure. Yeah, their view was, you're not going to write an Odyssey episode. You're not going to do something that About is the going to, Mary. <laughs> yeah, that's going to throw them. Yeah, I mean, sure. you know, you know what, uh, what you have to you do. You know the job description. And it was more or less a don't ask, don't tell situation. Yeah, it's yeah. like, we didn't bring it up. And some of them actually just thought, oh, he's doing that liturgical thing that he likes so much. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, since I've become Catholic, it's interesting to hear reactions because people have, I don't know, three different reasons that they think of me, mm-hmm. that, that, that they think I would have for becoming Catholic. I think those would be characterized as something like, you know, beauty music, history, you know, beauty, yeah. music, and liturgy. And, and yeah. you like and the bells history. and smells. You yeah, like exactly. The, yeah. And, yeah. And that's just, that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, Oh yeah. And I, I'm guessing the same for you since you came from an Anglican slash Episcopal church that did music and liturgy and history. Well, you know, if I wanted, if I wanted the best liturgy, I would have remained an Anglican because, Oh, the well, a friend of mine great. before I came in, um, he had become Catholic before I did. And he said, look, if you are becoming Catholic, because you think you're going to have the experience you had at Grace Church, you're going to regret you it. You won't. Yeah. Don't come in. Exactly. Don't do it. Right. That's not a reason to do it. No, definitely. And not. he was absolutely right. I mean, it, again, I'm going back to the truth. Mm-hmm. This is where the truth of Christ resides. This is what He put into place. 
uh, for better or for worse, with all of our fallenness, with everything that comes with it in 2,000 years of a very checkered history. But that didn't throw me off. In fact, being a Protestant helped me. So, you know, how many churches have fallen from a scandal because of financial impropriety or sexual impropriety or something, major megachurch pastors who've fallen— I, I was unflinching. That That's like, that's not news to no me. Problem. That yeah. happens all the time. It's routine, right? So the fact that it happened at various times in various places in history was not a shocker to yeah. me. So for me, coming in wasn't going to be about the beauty, wasn't going to be, I would have loved that. Sure, it would have been great. But I also knew that in Colorado Springs, I'd be hard-pressed to find it. Yeah. And so uh, the other thing is, a friend of mine actually said, well, you just like authority. You're looking for a, a father figure. Now you've got one. Yeah, this is, you know, this which is, is a bit condescending, right? yeah. you know, oh, totally, uh, totally. you know, to even say that. And I went, no, actually, it's because of the truth. Right. I'm not looking for some structure in my life as if I was missing structure in my life, especially in worship. Uh, I was looking for truth. And that's what I found. And then, you know, the other would be, oh, well, it is just the liturgy or it's it's something other. You were you were saying there are like three different things that people yeah. assume and I, I think I think I would say four, I guess, because authority is definitely one. That's probably yeah. the biggest one. They think, oh yeah, he just wanted an easy out and have sort of a yeah. be able to or somebody to, to tell you to put it in order right exactly because you're tired of the chaos, you right? Know? So yeah. you just want some dictator to come in and go, I will give you safety and security and 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 explain everything to you so right. you don't have to sweat it out. But but as we've talked about, that totally misunderstands the authority right. argument. And then there's yeah, beauty. We could probably wrap that up with liturgy. Uh, music, maybe wrap that up with beauty as well. History. But, you know, if, if I wanted history, I would have, you know, gone to a like Greek Orthodox church that's very steeped in the old liturgies, yeah. not, you know, not the uh, the new form of the mass, the Novus Ordo. So there are other places where you can get a better tangible sense of the history. Mm-hmm. But like you said, none of that ultimately is why I become Catholic. I became Catholic because it's true. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was at a, a work conference the, the other day and was sitting next to a guy who mentioned that he was Catholic. And I mentioned, oh, I, I am Catholic as well. I became Catholic four years ago. And he was like, oh, that's interesting. Did you, was that for family reasons or? And I said, uh, no, actually it's because I believe what the church teaches is true. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if he was, I don't think he was a very devout Catholic because he was sort of taken aback by that as yeah. if, you know, wow, why would you actually believe some of that crazy well, stuff? Well, it's so know? funny to me. It's like when I moved to England, uh, the British, <laughs> they were always funny because it's like, well, what do you do here? Well, I'm a writer. Yeah. So some company brought you here. Uh, no, no, I came here because I wanted to live here. You came here on purpose? <laughs> and you get that from Catholics. Sure. It's like, wait a minute, you're not a cradle Catholic. Right. It wasn't forced on you. Something You happened. actually made the choice. Yeah. And I remember explaining to uh, a friend who was curious about why I made the move. Yeah. And I explained it to her. And, and at the end of it, she said, so... What was the crisis? I said, well, there wasn't really a crisis. I mean, I suppose the Episcopal thing triggered it. A but as, as John, as John yeah. Henry Newman said, there are a million reasons to become Catholic, but often there's a catalyst right. that then pushes you in that direction. And so I thought I wasn't trying to escape anything. I wasn't, I, I didn't intend to become Catholic. It just, when I followed the truth, that's where it led me. Um, I would have been very comfortable to stay Anglican. I mean, it would have been fine. Well, I wouldn't say comfortable considering the direction it went. Yeah, sure. But I wasn't trying to escape anything. I wasn't, there was no family crisis. There was no crisis per se, except the nagging question for me. Yep. Which was, uh, as we've said, about authority, interpretation, establishment of doctrine. Where does that go once I answer the question? So since having come to that truth 
and bought into it completely yielding to the authority of the church, I, I don't have any regrets about being Catholic. I can't imagine being anywhere else. And that's not even to negate the steps getting here. I mean, when I tease about things related to Protestant or about Baptist or whatever, it's sort of tongue-in-cheek most of the time because I, I relish those days. Sure. I loved those days, and they were part of my journey, an important part of my journey, mm -hmm. just as I don't necessarily, I can tease about a lot of what goes on in the Episcopal Church, but I do deeply appreciate and relish the fact that in many ways, uh, the Anglican experience was a bridge, as they say they yeah, are, sure. but it was the bridge to Catholicism. All right. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We'll be back with part two in a few days. In the meantime, go give us a review or rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. And let me know what I missed in this interview or chime in with your thoughts. Credal Catholic at vernacularpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you. <laughs>